Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2? We're continuing a a series on the church, and uh, it's called Church Who Needs It. We've been in it for several weeks, and now we're at a very important part of the series, and that is getting along with each other as Christians. Philippians chapter 2, let's look at the first four verses together. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless not only the reading of your word, but the instructive principles that we find therein. Lord, as we discuss uh, this issue, as we discuss uh, a, a local situation going on in Philippi, Though we may not be experiencing the same today, there could come a time when these truths will come to bear and be very, very vital for us. So we pray, Lord, that the spirit of the living God would break the bread of life afresh to our lives and hearts that we might know how to serve you better by serving each other. In Jesus name. Amen. There wasn't always harmony in our home growing up. I was one of four boys. Four rowdy boys. And did we know how to argue? Did we know how to fight? And sometimes the fights were very vocal, very uh, noisy. I remember throwing my brother through a window and him throwing me through the same window after it was repaired by my parents. I remember coming at my brother with a knife and him coming at me with a pencil. And um, we, we have since then learned to get along a lot better with each other as we have grown up. But that happens in families. <laughs> if you are parents or you think back to your own family, you, you've got your own stories. I know that. Well, in the Christian family, when you have spiritual infants and spiritual adolescents and spiritual teenagers and even spiritual adults, there can be friction within God's family. It's sibling rivalry of sorts. There was a dad who came home, wanted some peace and quiet, opened up the newspaper to read, And he heard his young daughter and her friends in the next room. They were talking. Then they got noisy and more argumentative and they were pushing and they were yelling and even calling each other names. And when dad put his newspaper down and demanded an account, his little daughter walked in and smiled and said, Daddy, it's okay. We're just playing church. 
But the goal is to grow up. The goal for Christians is to grow up. Paul said as much to the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote them and said, grow up. Or in his own words, that we should no longer be children, but that we may grow up in all things. It's okay when children act like children, even when they fight and squabble. There's something cute about that. They can say things that make us laugh. But it's tragic when adults do it. There's nothing more tragic than to see children in adult bodies. They've got the power, but they don't have the wisdom. And whenever you see church splits or church fights or church arguments, what you are seeing and what you are hearing is children in adult bodies. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. Children at play who don't want unity but will will promote disunity just to get their own agenda. Now, Christians throughout history haven't always gotten along. And if I may just switch from the need to grow up to just just say that it, it doesn't always happen. And I just want to normalize this just a little bit. I want to normalize it. As I read my New Testament, I discover that even Jesus' closest apostles didn't get along with each other. That they had fights while Jesus walked the earth and argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand when he comes again? As I read the New Testament, I discover that even Peter and Paul didn't get along with each other, but had an argument in Galatia over the meaning of the law and its application. As I read my New Testament, I discovered that the council at Jerusalem argued about the relationship of the Christian to the law of Moses. And on and on and through history and through councils, even during the Reformation, great reformers like Luther and Zwingli argued about the Lord's Supper and how that is to be administered. According to U.S. News and World Report, there are 22,000 different denominations and sects of Christianity throughout the world. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that you have a lot of different ways of looking at things and dealing with each other. So the church is the society of the redeemed, not the society of the perfect. And I say all that in hopes that you will lower your expectation a notch or two when it comes to the church. There's some people that have such high expectations of perfection among the church and church leaders. It is impossible and will always be impossible to please them. Well, we're in Philippians 2, and I know I told you to turn to Philippians 2, but what I'd like to show you is that there were two forces at work that were pressuring the Philippians to divide. Pressure number one. False teachers from the outside. Pressure number two, fighting Christians from the inside. False teachers fighting Christians. Both were addressed by Paul. If you look at chapter three, you'll see the first. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. These were false teachers. He calls them dogs. I like Paul. 
The second problem was the fighting members on the inside. Look at chapter four. Therefore, my beloved, my long for my joy, my crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche. These are two women in the church to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. We don't exactly know what the issue was, but apparently there were two strong personality women in the church at Philippi that polarized people around their issue. They were at odds with each other. Maybe these were two women who were there from the very beginning when Paul first went to Philippi down at that riverbank. But now it was causing a division. So to our text in Philippians chapter two, he is laying groundwork. This is groundwork of getting along with one another. This is where it all begins. Here are the basics of getting along and the basis of getting along. Philippians two, one through four. Now, you have four verses, as do I in my Bible in this chapter. What you may not know is that in the original Greek, it's one long, complex, ongoing sentence. Chapter one or verses one through four is all one sentence. And it's put out in a literary format, a literary device called protasis and apotasis. Uh, an if then clause, a conditional clause. If this is so, then that must be so. That's how it is set out. That's how Paul works it to make a very strong point. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is look at these two things, the basics of getting along and the basis of getting along. I'm going to not start in verse one, but actually in verse three to give you the basics, because in verse three and verse four, Paul gives us two ways we should not be with each other and two ways we should be with each other. Don't be like this, Paul says, but be like that. And so these are the basics, negative and positive. By the way, these first two negatives are exactly the same way and same reasons that Satan didn't get along with God. Now, I want you to hear this. Exactly the same thing that happened with Satan and God could happen with each other in church. Listen to what Satan says in Isaiah 14. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. What is that? That's this. That's selfish ambition and conceit. The very two things Paul says, don't be like that. So these first two things describe the personality of Satan. The second two things, humility, etc., describe the personality of Jesus Christ. The first two things will ruin a church. The second two will remedy a church. So look at the first. Number one, don't live selfishly. Or as he writes it, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. There's not a person in this room who doesn't know what selfishness looks like. Do you have children? Then you know what selfishness looks like. You have parents? Then you know what selfishness looks like. 
Do you know any other human being? Then you know what selfishness looks like. And if you're honest with yourself, if you're the only one around you, you know what selfishness looks like. You're getting my point? It's a natural human trait. It is a trait of all fallen human beings. Calvin Miller said that if we were the ones to have written the Lord's Prayer, it would sound like this. Our Father who art in heaven, gimme, gimme, gimme. That's selfish ambition. That's natural fallen humanity. Now, the word means to cause division in order to get your own way. To cause division in order to get your own way. This is a pushy person. I'm going to get my way, says that person as he walks into an issue or a situation. That's selfish ambition. It's like the little boy and his sister who were riding a toy horse together out in front of a supermarket. You know, you put a quarter in and the thing moves around. I don't know if they still have those. I guess it's all replaced by iPhones and gadgets now. But in the days when there were those little horses out in front of supermarkets, A little boy and his sister were trying to ride it together. Good luck. The little boy turned to his sister and said, you know, if one of us would get off, there'd be more room for me. That's selfish ambition. Me first philosophy. And that ruins friendships, families, marriages and churches. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. So that's that's the first thing not to be. Don't live selfishly. The second negative, the second thing not to be is don't live pridefully for in the same sentence. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, if any of you this morning have the old King James Bible, I just confess to you, they translate this word far better than the new King James, NIV, NLT, anybody. They use the word vainglory. Vainglory, a very descriptive word of what this is about. Conceit, vainglory, the empty pride of living for other people's opinions. The empty pride living for other people's opinions. This is a person who is so exalted in his own opinion and he's concerned that others share that same view of himself or herself. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3, that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's vainglory. That's conceit. That is the very opposite of what Paul considered himself to be, of what Peter considered himself to be, of what John considered himself to be. What is the one word that all three of these writers introduced themselves as whenever they wrote a New Testament book? Servant. You got it. Servant. Paul, a slave of Christ, a bond slave or a bond servant. Servants keep churches from splitting. Uh, Vainglorious, self-absorbed people help it split. There's two ways you can enter a room. You can enter a room of people with a sort of a stance and attitude that says, well, here I am. Or you can enter the same room with a group of people with the attitude that says, ah, there you are. That's the servant. That's the servant. I read something a long time back. I thought about it for a good long while. It seems that if thoroughbred horses get attacked, that they have a strategy. 
If they're attacked from the outside, they form a circle and their heads are all in the center of that circle, giving them the ability to kick outwards and backwards in any direction from any predator. That's smart. But the same article talked about how donkeys react when they're attacked. They also form a circle, but they all face outward and they'll start kicking, but they'll start kicking each other. I read that and I thought. That is so descriptive, so telling, so indicting. I guess it begs the question, are we thoroughbreds or donkeys? Don't live selfishly. Don't live pridefully. Those are the first two negatives. Here's the second two, and they're positives. Do live humbly. Do live humbly. Look at verse three. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Those are the first two negatives. But in lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Now, lowliness of mind is one word in the Greek language. Tapaino frasune. Six syllables. Tapaino frasune. That's hard to say. Took me all day to memorize how to say that just for this moment. But the reason I did it is this. One of the most despised characteristics in Greek philosophy was the quality. They didn't call it a quality. The vice of being tapaina frasune. Of having a low mind. In fact, the Greeks gave that title to slaves that they would conquer. Somebody who would grovel in the dust was given this humble-minded, lowly-minded title. So if you were conquered by a Greek army and they turned you into submissive slaves, they would give you this title, lowliness of mind. And that is because the virtues that the Greeks loved were things like self-assertiveness. Uh, confidence, self-esteem. So they saw this not as a virtue, but as a vice. And I'm bringing that up because that's exactly the opposite of how the Bible views it. The Bible doesn't view lowliness of mind as a vice, but as a virtue, something to want, something to incorporate in one's life. The opposite of being confident and self-assertive lowliness of mind. The crouching submissiveness of a slave. And why is that? Because that's exactly the attitude of Jesus Christ. Remember I said the first two are the personality of Satan. The second two are the personality of Christ. This is the personality of Christ. Look at verse five. He brings that point very clear. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Jesus didn't exalt himself. He humbled himself. You want to get along with other Christians in church? Do that. Do that. It shouldn't be the attitude of how can I climb the ladder higher and higher? But how can I descend the ladder lower and lower like Christ? Those are the basics. Lowliness 
is the grease that keeps the gears of relationships smooth in any body of believers. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And whenever I see somebody who is puffed up and they have these exaggerated ideas of their own importance and want everybody else to know about them, I think that person isn't following the one who's lowly in heart. One of my favorite authors, F.B. Meyer, Frederick B. Meyer, a British pastor, did work on both sides of the Atlantic a century ago, almost. Wrote this, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we could reach them. But I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other and that it's not a question of growing taller, but of stooping Lower. You want a rewarding church experience? Get down. Sounds like I'm a disco guy. Get down. Get lower. Get more humble. So do live humbly. And finally, the fourth, the second of the two positive characteristics, do live respectfully. Do live respectfully. Again, verse three It says in lowliness of mind. That's the first. Here's the second. Let each esteem others better than himself. If you're an American, if you're a Westerner, and I assume all of you are, this flies directly in the face of everything you've been taught the last 30 years in our culture. This says, let each of you esteem others better than yourself. The person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, better than yourself. The last 30 years has seen the idea of self-esteem become the hallowed virtue of Western culture. It's all about your self-esteem. Well, how does this affect my self-esteem? Well, if they say that to me, what will that do to my self-esteem? And your self-esteem is so guarded and so important and it's so hollowed. I went on Google yesterday and Googled self-esteem. 13,900,000 hits. Almost 14 million hits. Self-esteem, the hollowed virtue of the American pantheon. But here it says, let each esteem others better than yourself. See what I mean? It's directly antithetical. It's counterintuitive to everything we've been taught. The Williams translation puts it this way. Practice treating one another as your superior. What would happen if we started doing that? If when we met a person, there's a little bit of a riff, we start imagining this person is my superior, my boss, writes my paycheck. You're going, okay, that's that's tough. How how do we pull that off? Verse four tells you how to do that. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's how we do it. We look out. We start watching. We start noticing. We actually become interested. Here's the deal. Here's the bottom line. If if I'm always looking out for myself and you're always looking out for yourself, if I'm always putting myself first and you always put yourself first, we're going to collide. There's going to be some nasty fireworks. But if I'm thinking about you and you're thinking about me, things are going to run very smoothly. Moreover, the body of Christ, the church is going to be built up and become healthy. The key words in verse four are to look out. See those words? Look out. 
doesn't mean look out, like watch your back. The idea means to focus one's attention upon or to notice or to keep your eyes carefully on something else. It's where we dare to notice and care what's going on in another person's life. I heard about two boys who were talking, two little boys. And if you know me by now, you know that I love conversations between kids. And one little boy said to his friend in a candid moment, wouldn't you hate to wear glasses all the time? Just like a kid, right? Wouldn't you hate to wear glasses all the time? And his friend said, I don't know. Not if they were my grandmother's glasses. He said, you know, my grandmother has this ability to be able to see if there's a problem or a hurt in a person's life and say and do exactly the right thing to make that person feel better. And I asked grandma, how do you do it? She said, it's the way she has learned to see things the older she gets. And the kid who came up with the protest in the beginning said, you're right, it must be your glasses. He just didn't get it. May God give us new glasses to look out for each other. So those are the basics of getting along. Don't be like that. Do be like this. Now comes the basis of getting along. Now, what I want you to notice with me briefly is the reasons Paul lists of why we should get along with each other as believers. And I'm going to take you to the first word of chapter two. What's the first word? Therefore. Now, if you know anything about language, you know, you don't start a thought with the word therefore. It it. it is a word that refers to other things that I have written about or talked about before this. So to begin a chapter, therefore, you have to know what the therefore is there for. You've you got to get the context of it. So we will begin in chapter one of verse 27 to understand the therefore. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. Therefore, and now he begins the new chapter. In other words, they in Philippi were getting persecuted. And he mentions that. He says, stand firm because you're getting persecuted by the world, just like I've been persecuted by the world. You saw it and heard about it in me. And then he says, therefore, in other words, here's reason number one. We should get along with each other because the world out there won't provide it for us. Won't provide it for us. Paul is saying, since the world is going to persecute you and is going to afflict you, and because you will suffer at the hands of the world, the one place where love and acceptance is to be found is not out there. Don't expect to get it out there. And if you can't get it out there, the one place you should get it is here with each other. Jesus put it this way, in the world you will have tribulation, but... Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So 
since the world won't provide this kind of love and acceptance and forgiveness for us, and the one place we find it is together, this is the reason why when a church splits or fights or argues, it is so utterly absurd. It's like a soap opera. It's like a soap opera. Now, I'm not a soap opera fan, if you didn't guess that already. But I do know that soap operas have been going on a long time on television, and I actually know a couple people in my lifetime who have watched them. And uh, so I have, on occasion, tuned in. Only long enough to discover the theme of most soap operas is deceit, envy, avarice, all of the base experiences and emotions of humanity. And as I watch some soap operas on the little snippets that I have gotten, I wonder, do any of these people get along with anyone else? It seems to be constant conflict and constant churning. So that is why it's absurd when the church acts like the world, a thinking unbeliever looks at the church and says, excuse me, I don't want to join that. I can stay at home and watch a soap opera. I can get that for free at television. I don't need to see that kind of drama played out inside a church. It's awkward when Christians battle that way. Second reason is because you belong to Christ. Because you belong to Christ. Therefore, that's the first reason, because the world won't provide it. Second is because you belong to Christ. Notice, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. Now, you see the little word if? Cross it out and put since. That's the meaning of the Greek word. What he's saying is this. Since it's true that there is consolation in Christ. Since it is a fact since it's verified that you and I are consoled by Jesus Christ himself who forgave us by his blood, that forms the basis of getting along with each other. It takes that same kind of acceptance. Acceptance, love, forgiveness. Now, there's some things that are true about human beings. People can blow it. People can get very nasty. People can say hurtful things. People can be downright stupid and egg-headed. Amen? And that's a precisely why they need forgiveness. Hear me. And no more of these arguments. Well, you can't believe what he said. I can believe it. I've heard it. Moreover, I'm a keen observer of human nature. Oh, but they're so horrible. It's exactly why they need your forgiveness. Because they're sinners and they say and they do those hurtful things. And that's the point. There's consolation in Christ and there is. And since Jesus did that for you, you can't do that for somebody else. I'll reinforce that. Ephesians 4.32, you know it. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You. So because the world won't provide it, because you belong to Christ. Third reason, because his love is the catalyst that gets this going. Notice the next phrase in verse one. If there is any comfort of love. Now, it's speaking about his love for us. If there's any comfort 
that you derive from his love for you. God's love is one of the most comforting things ever. No wonder Billy Graham always has said at the end of his crusades, remember, God loves you. He says he'll say that 30 times in a message because it's it's so comforting, the comfort of his love. I love that song. Oh, the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all. Just to think God loves me. I hope you're not the kind of a person who says, well, I am pretty lovable. I, I don't think it's a great wonder that God loves me. Hey, do you remember that that fairy tale of the uh, beautiful princess who was going to kiss the ugly toad? You know that everybody knows it. And it's always struck me as odd because what toad wouldn't want to be kissed by a beautiful princess? Oh, that's great. It's, a gr- it's the best day of his life. But what princess would ever want to kiss a dirty, slimy, odorous toad? I can't think of one. The ultimate kiss in history is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. So there is great comfort in God's love for us that he would bow to that extreme. But do you know that you have a capacity to love? You have a great and deep capacity to love the unlovable, to love the unruly, to love the nasty. Because the Bible says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. That the love we have received from him, God has given us all a wonderful, huge, limitless capacity to show love to another. It's a wonder why we don't. We have that capacity. Fourth reason, because we're a spiritual family. That's another and final basis of getting along because we're a family. He continues, if there is any fellowship in the spirit, fellowship in the spirit. We've already covered fellowship. You know what it means. Koinonia, joint partnership and a common interest. You and I are joined together. We're part of a family. We have the same spiritual resources, same spiritual blessings. We're part of the same spiritual family. That's one of the basis. God put us together. We're in his family. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. That means you're my brother and my sister and vice versa. If there is any fellowship in the spirit, the next phrase is also family related. Look at that before we close. If there is any affection and mercy, he says in verse one, fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Any affection and mercy. Now, if you do happen to have an old King James Bible, this is where the translation goes from really wonderful before vain glory to a little bit weird. Because if you have a King James version, it says if there are any bowels of mercy. Bowels. Merciful bowels. Do you have merciful bowels this morning? That's an old word to speak of deep seated Emotional affection. Because the Hebrews believed that the, the place you feel the most emotion is in your gut. If you show genuine compassion to a person, you show it in the bowels. Jesus saw the multitude. It says he was moved with compassion. The Greek word splankana means the bowels. He felt deeply compassion and emotion. 
So as members of the same spiritual family, we are to show compassion to each other, to value each other because we have been forgiven. We have been blood bought. We are under this covenant. So that is the basics and the basis of getting along. I want to close with a story. Seemed that a young man was returning from war. He was a veteran. He survived. He came home to the shores of the United States of America. First thing he did, he was a good boy, got on the phone, called his mama, said he's coming home. They were excited to hear each other's voice. I'm going to tell you the story now as I read it. As they talked for a while, eventually the young man said to his mother, Mom, I have my best friend in the whole world and I want to bring him home with me. He saved my life. He was one of my buddies out in the field when a hand grenade was thrown into our foxhole and he was wounded, saving my life. As a result, he continued tentatively. He has only one eye. And one arm. And one leg. And mommy doesn't have any family except ours. He said this with hope in his voice. Ah. I've told him, Mom, that he can come home with me. I would like your permission for him to come and be one of our family and to live with us from now on. Can he? His voice trailed off, anxiously awaiting her reply. You bring him home, son, she said, and in a few days we'll be able to find a place for him where I know he'll be happy. I'm so anxious to see you, she said, trying hard to hold back the tears that were welling up in her eyes. But he pleaded, Mother, I want him to come home and be a part of our family, not to go anywhere else, but to live with us. Well, son, you're so young, she reasoned. It'd be all right for a short time, but after a while, we would get tired of always having to care for him. But you can bring him home for three, four weeks, she conceded. During that time, we'll find him a place. You understand, don't you? Yes, mother, his voice sounded so far away. I think I do. They said their goodbyes and they hung up. The mother was so excited that she would see her son in a few days. But the next day, the next day, a government official stopped at that home with tragic news. Her son had taken his own life. The mother was obviously shocked and perplexed and wondered how this could ever have happened. In a few days, the son's body arrived in their hometown. Numb with grief, she went down to view the body of her precious son. She looked into the coffin. Then she understood. He had only one eye, one arm, and one leg. And he had tested her love, and her love had fallen short. Having become crippled, he no longer felt he had any value. How very different is that from the love of Jesus Christ, who has come for the crippled and the brokenhearted and the lame and the fatherless and the senseless and the directionless and says, ah, there you are. I got a place just for you. And with that, he gives the commission to us to say exactly the same to those that he calls to his body. Heavenly Father, it is your body, the body of Christ, the hands and legs and vessels and cells of Jesus Christ, 
on the earth. So when we speak, it is Christ speaking. When we act, it is Christ acting. When we feel, it is Christ feeling. And Lord, even though our own history of the church over the last 2,000 years has been marred and marked by human failure, even though that is true, you call upon us to grow up in all things in Christ and to be those mature adults who have so received from Christ and so get it what it means to be forgiven and accepted they become so much a part of our nature to do that with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.